The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 18th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sheldon's got a gumar. Sheldon Silver, former speaker of the New York State Assembly, was convicted of corruption and bribery. He's awaiting sentencing. The prosecutor, federal prosecutors, by the way, filed documents detailing the amorous assemblyman's wanton ways. Now look, corrupt officials, they're everywhere. If you live outside New York, do you really care about this guy? In fact, if you live in Rhode Island, South Carolina, or Alabama, your speaker of your state assembly or house was also indicted in 2015. Great years for speakers of state assemblies or houses getting indicted. But I always wanted on this show to talk about Sheldon Silver because I am fascinated by how Sheldon Silver talks. Here he is at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. The great progressive state of New York, engine of opportunity, cradle of civil rights, Model of the American dream. You know this tradition, each state gets to blather on a little about their accomplishments. A little. We, the empire state of democracy and diversity. Oh, God, it's not as if New York praise isn't on the record in other forms. The Sheldon Silver say Sinatra, Jay-Z, they lack the lyricism of a Sheldon Silva. From the shores of Lake Erie to Long Island Sound, from the peaks of our North Country to the rivers of our Southern Tier. We're innovators and achievers are building a brighter future in cities such as Buffalo and Rochester. Are we gonna list every city? Syracuse and Binghamton. Indeed we are. Where the Adirondack Forest stands majestically the Niagara Falls thunder New York, New York, New York, you have 384 votes. How do you All right, know? finally, someone interrupts him. My point is this. He is a boring, boring man. This alone is not indictable. The bribes, the corruption, that was indictable. That was also convictable. He got convicted. But it was garden variety, unsexy corruption until it got sexy. Sheldon Silver has been having an affair, two affairs. This isn't about slut-shaming Sheldon Silver. This is about connecting the dots between the lobbyists he was sleeping with and the former elected official he was sleeping with and the favors and influence he gave them, allegedly. We've got to say allegedly, not just because we're a reputable news organization, but because we're talking about Sheldon Silver having an affair. This guy establishes this moratorium in order to give the legislature sufficient time to more fully review the available data and to assess the findings of the Department of Environmental Conservation once they are released. Oh my God. Now, this is a quote that's often attributed to Henry Kissinger, that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. I guess, but Henry Kissinger is positively Gosling-esque next to Sheldon Silver. Sheldon Silver makes Kissinger look like human Viagra. Well, he's got that bass voice, that bass voice, and the flappy jowls. Okay, to be fair, the last clip I played of Sheldon Silver, it wasn't meant to be exciting, establishing a moratorium. Here he is at a political rally. Here he is trying to cause excitement and arousal. Are you ready to launch a new era of hope in America? Are we ready to crush 
the politics of privilege. Are you ready to succumb to the temptations of this Lothario of the Lower East Side? Wait, I've got a clip of Sheldon Silver actually talking about a scandal, a scandal that's sexual in nature. Let's see if he changes the mood a little. This was not a cover-up as such. This was a pre-litigation settlement. It resulted from a mediation of the issue. Oh, what pillow talk. Darling, my loins, also referred to as my nether regions, or alternatively, my tingly bits, are aflame for you, darling. Okay, like I said, this isn't about slut-shaming Sheldon Silver. It's not even about shaming the man for being so uninteresting that no one could bear to scrutinize his tactics, lest they had to sit through his droning. This is about the fact that one of the women did business with the state as a lobbyist. The other got a state job. The affairs were relevant to the case against Sheldon. They weren't merely smearing his character or to an extent redefining it. Sheldon Silver, an affair. Sheldon Silver will be sentenced May the 3rd. This is sad because there is very little time for him and Henry Kissinger to record that duet that America demands. To all the girls I've loved before who've traveled in and out my door. On the show today, I spiel about, well, it's a journey. I start with the Google Play app. I end up with a popular line in Bernie Sanders' stump speech. But first, Bill Clinton's advanced man tells all, or at least a lot. Josh King of the Poly Optics podcast, an old favorite of mine, is out with a new book. He was the man in charge of the visuals during the Clinton White House, and he's been looking at the campaigns today. So Michael Dukakis, that guy's practically military hero. And George Bush, he knows how a supermarket scanner reads. Well, maybe that's true, but it sure didn't look that way. Because what we're talking about is optics and the visual. And if you're talking about optics and politics, you should be talking to Josh King. Luckily, I am. Josh King is former director of production for presidential events at the White House. His, uh, oh God, I loved his podcast, Polyoptics, and his new book is called Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. Hello, Josh. Hello, Mike. Big fans since the pilot episode of The Gist. Been listening religiously ever since. Thank you, Josh. So, why didn't you deal with Dukakis in the tank? You gave it short shrift. I'm joking. There was 100 pages about Dukakis in the tank. Because this is, this is the most important thing or the touchstone in your field of how things look in politics. If anyone got out of college, Mike, after June of 1989, they would use Dukakis and the tank as the greatest disaster in American politics. And every time you look at Twitter, you put in Dukakis and Tank, you'll find references to it no older than two or three hours. So it's a event that goes back to September 13th, 1988, but it endures to this very moment. They say success has one father and failure, you know, a million, but you kind of document that. What were the big things that went wrong? Well, the big thing that went wrong was deciding, first of all, that uh, you should have Mike Dukakis try to be someone he wasn't. Right. Dukakis came out of Swarthmore College, did a two-year hitch in the U.S. Army in Korea, was not after the armistice, so didn't fight. He was paired against a guy who had been plucked from the Pacific Ocean as a bomber pilot in World War II, George H.W. Bush, a certified American hero. And 
the polling that Dukakis' campaign looked at in the spring and summer of 1988 was really does not stack up as we should be able to hand the keys of the U.S. arsenal to this guy. So send him out to Sterling Heights, Michigan, a battleground where 22 electoral votes were at stake, and make him look like a credible commander-in-chief, have him actually spend a full week of his campaign talking about national defense issues, and culminate that with riding in an M1A1 Abrams main battle tank named for Abe Abrams, one of the greatest tank commanders in American history. And here's a five foot eight guy sticking his head and upper torso out of a behemoth, and he looked like Snoopy fighting the Red Baron. But for the helmet, would it have gone from an F minus photo op or campaign opportunity to a C minus? But for the creative insight of a guy named Sig Rogish. Mm-hmm who was one of the members of the advertising team of Reagan and Bush in 1984, was re-enlisted to help Vice President Bush win the, the White House in 1988, saw the coverage that night. Remember, we only saw two minutes, if we were lucky, of coverage mm-hmm. by Sam Donaldson, Bruce Morton, and Chris Wallace. Could have come and gone that night, Mike. And being forgotten because there was a big debate in Los Angeles coming up where you remember Bernie Shaw asked about uh, whether the Governor Dukakis, if your wife Dukakis, was raped yeah. or murdered. Rogish sees this tape and says, you know, there's there's something here. And I'm going to see if I can acquire this tape from one of the news stations that was out filming. No one wanted to sell it to him, but there was an independent guy who would sell it to the Bush quail campaign for a certain sum of money. And getting into a studio, editing it over and over, reversing the footage, adding in some tank gear sounding noises, and have this script that is damning about all the things that said Dukakis was not a credible commander-in-chief, suddenly you have 30 seconds of very powerful airtime, and then you decide to put it on in Game 3 of the 1988 World Series. The Los Angeles Dodgers are going up to Oakland to, against the Oakland A's, and think about that national audience, and they had nothing else to do that night but watch baseball. Now they were watching Dukakis and the Tank, and that's why we remember it in history. Dukakis opposed the stealth bomber and a ground emergency warning system against nuclear attack. He even criticized our rescue mission to Grenada and our strike on Libya. And now he wants to be our commander-in-chief. America can't afford that risk. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Swarthmore. Hey, that's where Dukakis went to school. Were you always visually driven? Were you the kind of kid who would make the little uh, frame with his fingers and see how things would look? A lot of people got to Swarthmore well-trained in political philosophy. I thought I got to Swarthmore well-trained in reading the journalists of Time Magazine and the photographers of Time Magazine. And so while people were looking at comic books, I was reading, you know, Otto Friedrich and Lance Morrow and and all the people who wrote with great colorful prose, as you remember the way Time would publish its stories, and these full-page pictures by people like Dirk Halstead and Diana Walker. You know, who was I looking at from the summer of 1980 until the late months of 1988, Ronald Wilson Reagan of California. That sort of framed my view of what the presidency is or could be as an object of theater. From the time you started, when you had to worry about three networks and a few newspapers and some uh, magazines, two big national ones mostly, to now where everyone has a cell phone, has the job gotten much harder or just much different? It's exponentially harder. 
if you scored on a good visual from, let's say, 1988, the beginning of the age of optics, as I define it, until 2004 through that campaign, that visual could carry you for 24 hours and maybe could really resonate for a long time. Now, as good a job as you can do or as bad a screw up as you can make on the campaign trail, our choices are so broad, our attention is so short that things are mostly going to dissipate with the next day's string of images that come through our Twitter feed. Is this a part of why ads, TV ads, are not having that big an impact? Maybe their death has been a little bit oversold. Is it because of some of what you're talking about, how we just cycle through these images so quickly and it can't stick stick like Dukakis in a tank? And because we're also time-shifting all of our viewing habits, Mike. I mean, maybe in markets where people don't have the Comcast digital box. Yeah. Look, the most memorable ad of this cycle was Bernie Sanders, no script other than Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, America. I'm Bernie Sanders and I approve this message. Back when all of the candidates were swirling around New York City, I happened to live a block away from Washington Square Park, where Bernie Sanders spoke to 27,000 people, so the campaign said. And I, I watched his whole presentation for 25 minutes. It was not as, as entertaining in 25 minutes as the, as the momentary glance of a smiling Bernie Sanders set to the soundtrack of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Do you, is Bernie Sanders a good candidate visually, or at least are his people doing good with the uh, askew-haired septuagenarian from Vermont? Not particularly. What they are actually following is a very tight Obama 2008-like script, which says, and I don't recall exactly his phrasing, but he's incredibly disciplined about whether he's in Washington Square Park or Washington State or uh, any other place on the political map. His events look all the same. People behind him waving similar placards, him saying the same thing. Actually, Donald Trump has had some of the has understood the power of the tight shot better than any candidate so far this year. Another thing you'll notice about the Trump campaign, everywhere he goes, whether it's Moline, Iowa, or Portland, Maine, or St. Petersburg, Florida, his podiums are all custom made for that locale. Hmm. So that you, when Bernie gives a rally, you don't know exactly where he is. Where Donald is, you can see that that 757 with the Trump livery is going around the country and going to smaller towns, and he's taking his message around America to, frankly, media markets and zip codes that will appeal most to his backers. But he does a very good job about understanding that he's trying to send a specific message. Indeed, Mike, his Make America Great Again red hat is, in a sense, a, a wearable billboard. You can't edit that out of a frame. Would you have thought that the plane with the candidate's name emblazoned on the side, the plane he owns, would be something to embrace in a political race before you saw it? Sure I would. Yeah. I think there's nothing like the power of incumbency for a president. When you are forced by law and security to fly Air Force One from tarmac to tarmac, a 747 or it's 757 or or Gulfstream derivatives, but it's still the same paint scheme. That confers upon you a level of authority and command and certainty that a person who happens to be chartering a rinky-dink 737 doesn't have. 
So when George H.W. Bush was battling against Mike Dukakis uh, in 1988, and Bush had Air Force Two, which looked exactly like Air Force One, and Dukakis had a rattling around 737 from presidential airways called Sky Pig, <laughs> there was no comparison. And similarly, when you are Donald Trump and you're going out to Des Moines, Iowa, and you can fly a plane that's branded for you and have a helicopter to take you to the Iowa State Fair that is branded for you. And oh, by the way, you can give a couple of kids a ride around the skies around Des Moines. That all inures well to your appeal to voters. Are Cruz and Kasich doing anything good or bad visually that you're seeing? Well, Cruz has mastered another thing that I we happened to sort of invent in the uh, in the Clinton years, and that is that he's very available to reporters and those that are following him, his pool that follows him daily. And he doesn't just assemble them in a gaggle. Cameras to the left, cameras to the right, cameras behind. It looks like I'm in the middle of a big scrum. He quickly erects the trust head mm-hmm. mobile backdrop with its tiny little messages yeah. that And you are, know TED are, Talks have got to be thrilled with that branding. <laughs> that, that are like dog whistles to yeah. certain elements of his constituency. So that when he is answering questions... One, he answers questions pretty regularly. Two, uh, when he does, uh, his staff takes extra effort to make it look somewhat more presidential for Ted. Kasich gets the award for being sort of trying to be most down home of all the candidates this cycle. I think there might have been a moment for him, look, there are going to be long books written after off script about how the moments for certain otherwise quality candidates got overwhelmed by the juggernaut that was Donald Trump. But, you know, in another time and another place, and maybe even Kasich as the bottom part of a Republican ticket, he's a very powerful message sender. To be a gifted politician these days, do you have to have a sense of the visual? I think so. I, I think Obama has it. Clinton had it. Well, they all have different gifts, Mike. And it matters, too, about who you're paired against. Obama was paired against John McCain and Mitt Romney, who had very different levels of performance on the stage. And it's not a gift of the visual, but for Obama, it was very much a gift of performance. It was about, like what you're seeing with Bernie Sanders now, an incredibly disciplined presentation city to city. And for Obama, a great writer, surrounded by great writers, understanding that I'm going to give this town a much better performance than my opponent, whether it's Hillary Clinton in the primaries or John McCain in the general, because I'm going to write a beautiful speech for this town, and I'm going to put it on a teleprompter. And for the most part, the networks that are going to be following me around are going to be zoomed in so close that people aren't going to see that basically everything I'm saying to you, you 12,000 people or 18,000 people in the Providence Civic Center, you're getting me reading my script from cue cards. And it's as good as I could write and my speechwriters could write last night, but I'm performing to you. The camera, the national cameras are seeing me head on, but they are sort of complicit in this whole process because they're zoomed in closer than they can see that I'm really just basically reading words. And that was Obama's trick against McCain because McCain said, too phony for me. Can't do it. Can't perform that way. Physically, because of my uh, incarceration in Vietnam, I don't have that same dexterity on the stump. Can't do it. Clinton understood that we could go on and on about Clinton, but getting in people's personal space, smiling a lot, inflection, tone, going off script, being able to tell 
homespun stories from Arkansas, like if a turtle got in a le- on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that a gifted politician can conjure. And, you know, as we've been talking about, even people like Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders in their own way understands what appeals to them. Is there something less substantive to what you do and what you do is important yeah. to getting people elected and making the message? But is it less substantive than what the speechwriter does, what the the policy wonk does? I mean, what you're doing is communicating to people who don't even have to be literate. Guilty as charged. <laughs> you know, the speechwriter spends a long time working on that 40-minute speech. And for the 300 people in the room or 3,000 people in the larger auditorium who are going to listen to that whole presentation, that's what they need. What I do is provide scale. I know that 50 minutes or 40 minutes of speech is not going to make it on the news. Uh, Maybe it's going to make it on YouTube if you're that patient to watch, which basically the same speech from city to city. But if you think about that New York primary contest, the influence of what was on the, the front page in the wood of the New York Post and the New York Daily News. The headline. It was all visual and headline. There was no substance on that front page. And that did more than anything else to change people's views and persuade their vote day to day leading up to that primary. Josh King is author of Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide, and is the former director of production for presidential events at uh, the White House. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, Applausible Lines. Today, I was listening to the Google Play app. I love that Google Play app. I either listen to podcasts to learn or the Google Play app. But today, the Google Play app let me learn. I learned that I like 90s agro anthems. I had no idea. Here's my process. I was working out. I hit the app. I'm an... Listen, I'm an old songs a guy from way back. So I like this Google Play app. It organizes things in terms of the activity you're doing. I don't overthink it. I don't try to trick it. I hit the app. It says, what's your activity? Right there up top, working out. I was indeed working out. I touched working out. It said lifting weights. That's exactly what I was doing. I pressed lifting weights and it said 90s agro anthems. I had no idea what 90s agro anthems were, but it knew that I was working out and lifting weights. So I played it. Hey, it's Hole, it's Nirvana, it's The Good Green Day, it's Tupac, you know. I didn't even know I liked Tupac or these particular songs. Turns out I liked them. It's the opposite, by the way, me learning that I liked 90s agro anthems of power pop. Because all my life, if you said, Mike, do you like power pop? I would say, well, what's not to like? Especially when they say power pop, like the Beatles. I like the Beatles. I like pop. The only thing maybe wrong with pop is it's too poppy, not powerful enough. You put in some power before the pop. What's not to like? I don't know, except I don't like it. Whenever they play power pop for me, there's a couple exceptions, the Beatles being one of them. It's not my thing. I guess I'm more into 90s aggro anthems. So what I like about the 90s aggro anthems are their attitude, which is expressed in their lyrics. Lyrics are really important to me. A powerful, in-your-face turn of phrase, something that really says something, that gets me going as much as the music. You know, it's the interplay, but it gets me going. But good music without the lyrics, like I think of this band Sigaros, you know them, Sigaros from uh, Iceland. They sing in their own made-up language. I would like them, except they're just talking nonsense stuff. This is not me mocking Icelandic. They made up a language. I can't get into them. Rap, 
if it's about, I, I respect that there's a lot of good lyrics going on in rap and hip hop, but if it's about a celebration of material possession or partying or that time I was a drug dealer, I don't know, I'm out. It's a little distancing. I don't relate, but I like Public Enemy. I like when they're talking about issues. Eminem, after Public Enemy, Eminem was always my favorite, but I haven't liked a hip hop artist or a group for a long, long time until now, until last year. I heard this group called Run the Jewels. Killer Mike of Run the Jewels. He strikes me as the new Chuck D. And there was literally one line, one line in a Run the Jewels song that hooked me. This is from their song. We gave the warning, right? This was from their song, Close Your Eyes and Count to Fuck. And how often haven't we done that? But just listen. Feel like it's a pillow torching. Where the fuck the warden? And when you find them, we don't kill them. We just waterboard them. We killing them for freedom because they tortured us for boredom. And even if some good was that fuck it, the Lord will sort them. Now you get to pillow torching. Where the fuck the warden? And when you find him, we don't kill him. We just waterboard him. We're killing them for freedom because they tortured us for boredom. And even if some good ones die, fuck it, the Lord will sort him. Lord will sort him. Tortured us for boredom. Waterboard. This is great. There are double rhymes. There's a thing that they're saying. Killer Mike immediately became my favorite Bernie Sanders surrogate. He could do no wrong. And it makes sense to me that he likes Bernie Sanders because like Killer Mike himself, Bernie Sanders' rhetoric relies on applausible lines. I didn't say applause lines. Every politician has applause lines. I said applausible lines like this. Greed, fraud, dishonesty, and arrogance. These are some of the words that best describe the reality of Wall Street today. That's a great line. It's a punchy construction. It's a bold policy that he's favoring, if indeed he's favoring a policy. The problem with me is I don't believe it. I think it's overly simplistic. I don't think it's strictly speaking correct. I think real life requires a more nuanced view. Bernie, by the way, will demand a nuanced view on some issues or a little nuance. Like, let me explain my gun vote. There were some good things in the bill. There were some bad things in the bill. I'm willing to give Bernie the nuance there. But then when it comes to other things, the issue is simple. Hillary took money from the banks. I didn't. Therefore, the banks bought her. I don't think it's that simple. My problem with applausible lines is that I don't really like applausible policy. I'm not saying I like nuance or I fetishize nuance. I like a good straight answer, but I do think politics and sometimes coalition building, horse trading, I think that's all necessary. I think a lot of solutions to our complex problems are actually complex solutions. And I think the cult of the common sense solution mostly needs to be rebranded as the cult of the solution that was quickly arrived at. But it's hard to give a punchy speech about moderation and on the other hand, and to be fair, just like it's hard to have great rap lyrics about moderation. There are just some media that doesn't lend itself to this. Slam poetry, right? Free Palestine. That's a good topic for slam poetry. Well, actually, though a number of the settlements do go beyond the 1967 red lines, that's bad policy. I don't know. I guess pro-Palestinian activists, their medium is slam poetry. Pro-Israeli activists, their medium is donating to AIPAC. That said, I find it sad. I wanted to write some really forceful rap lyrics that Run the Jewels could sing or rap about that was more about nuanced policy. And I went to bed thinking this thought. 
And I guess another thought that's, that entered my mind is recently President Obama was talking about how U.S. and coalition forces have killed 25,000 ISIS fighters in Syria and Iraq. And I was thinking about this and I had a dream and I wrote some lyrics about how successful America's war on ISIS has been going, but how little credit we get for the war. And the lyrics included phrases like, we wrote that off totally. We smote them remotely. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to read it to you, okay? My point is it's not a plausible. It's bad, bad lyrics. And until I establish myself as a rap impresario and I could throw my lyrics of moderation in a song with an otherwise great beat and excellent production values, there is no way that my non-applausible lyrics, my non-applausible disease will ever see the light of day. So I'm just resigned to the fact that there are some art forms where the applausible line necessarily carries the day. And I'm further resigned to the fact that one of those forms is campaigning. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has been writing aggressive lyrics to explain left and right pan in Adobe Audition. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has been penning some pointed criticism of the patriarchy of corner for easy insertion into a Loggins and Messina album. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is up late working on a rewrite of The Sound of Silence to acknowledge that there are some forms of unsilence that are really nice, like Happier with Gretchen Rubin and the Vox podcast, The Weeds. The gist, I've been rewriting Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma, to include a new scene about earthquakes and fracking. Oh, the geologist and the oil man should be friends. Umperu Depru Duperu, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Josh Levine from Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up Listen. I'm here with Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. I'm here with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hi. And we all three of us will be on the same stage coming up on April 25th, Monday night in Washington, D.C. for a live show at the Woolly Mammoth Theater. It's very rare for us all to be together. It's going to be fun. Both of those. It's rare for us to have fun and it's rare for us to be together. So that's good. I'm glad we're getting both done at once. And to be together and have fun at the same time. Yes, that's right. So if you want to be with us, if you want to have fun, you can shoot that gap, thread that needle. Be there April 25th at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. To buy tickets, you can go to slate.com slash live April 25th, Washington, D.C. Hang up and listen live.